Hello and welcome to this episode of The Politics of Living. I'm your host, Vicki Mazzone. On today's show, contributor Tabi Fashi Drake returns with a Peace, Love, and Soup segment. Kristen Thiel discovers the inventor of the coffee filter. ML Lari delves into concealing and revealing our feelings. But first, I interview a woman who's a solo mom. Sociologist Marika Lindholm, together with several other women, has edited a book for solo moms. Here's that interview. My guest today on The Politics of Living is Dr. Marika Lindholm, who is the founder of ESME.com, which stands for Empowering Solo Moms Everywhere, and she is one of the editors of a new anthology entitled We Got This, Solo Mom Stories of Grit, Heart, and Humor, being published on September 10th of this year. The book chronicles the journey of more than 75 solo moms, including a story from Amy Poehler. The moms come from a variety of diverse backgrounds, and they include single moms who are single by choice and single by circumstance. Welcome to The Politics of Living, Marika Lindholm. Thank you so much. First off, the title. This is a great title. It really gets your attention. Who came up with the title, We Got This? We were first thinking, hey, mama, or we had all these other ideas. And then it just, we had to decide to have a brainstorm. At the, it was sort of just at the last minute of like, what is this title going to be? And I think it was Cheryl Dimasnil who said, you know, something about you got this. And I was like, oh, wait, we got this. <laughs> it's just so perfect because it is exactly all of these moms, like no matter what the challenge is, no matter what they're facing, they are gonna, they're, they're there for their kids. So they got it. They're doing it. And who are the other editors working with you on this anthology who helped put it together? I have the dream team. Uh, I worked with Cheryl Dumas now, who's a poet, and Dominica Ruda, who's a memoirist, best-selling uh, author in the New York Times, and then Catherine Schonk, who's the editor at Esme.com and also um, a wonderful writer herself. So we, I just had assembled the best team, and we had the best time working together. It was great. In your research on finding books and materials about solo parenting, you mentioned that you found a lot of practical advice books, how-to, memoirs, you found fiction, but you were looking for stories and for community. So when did you start putting this together and, and how did it become a reality? The idea for the book came about three years ago at Esme. We collected poetry and essays by solo moms and I was so impressed with them and I knew that these moms didn't have the wherewithal and the energy to get their work out there it's oh if I could showcase these wonderful writers and it was later that we realized we should bring in some more prominent writers because you know not only is their work great but it would just help bring the book to the forefront so we added Anne Lamott and Audre Lorde and Mary Carr and of course you mentioned Amy Poehler uh, so it just um, it took a pretty long time because we also wanted to get original content, and so we solicited through our networks. We all, you know, had pretty extensive writing uh, networks, and we asked people to submit, and then we had to sort through because we wanted to represent the diversity of solo mom experience. And uh, yeah, it was really a, a challenging process, but super rewarding. We read so many uh, wonderful essays and poems and, you know, had to, of course, reject some. We couldn't just have, take, uh, you know, 10, 10 pieces in one chapter on divorce. So we really had to balance the 
trying to get the diversity of experience with picking out the most uh, beautifully written pieces. So it was actually fun. It just took quite a long time. <laughs> yeah, 75 stories. That's quite a lot. Some of them are really short. You know, it, I don't want anyone to feel that this book is going to overwhelm them. It's, um, you know, some of the poems are really short. Sometimes it's just a long quote. We have a pretty long Toni Morrison quote. And then some uh, excerpts that are longer. We just really know that solo moms are really busy and we want a book that they could put down, pick up and enjoy, you know, at their leisure. How is the book situated? You said there's a chapter on divorce. No, so we don't have a chapter on divorce. What we did was we uh, divided it up thematically and we used song titles to sort of divide it up. So we start with the, um, uh, the Kids Are All Right, which is, of course, about sort of, the, you know, assuaging the guilt of all the moms who are worried that their kids aren't going to be okay. And so it's all about, you know, the kids that are, they got it worked out. Lean on Me, which is, of course, about solidarity support, a day in a life, very self-explanatory. Good Morning Heartache, we get into some tough stuff. And the change is going to come is where we go through transitions that um, these moms, whether it's, you know, losing a partner or a spouse or having, you know, their partner to be, uh, be deployed. Of course, we have some fun romantic stuff. Isn't it romantic is that chapter? And then we end in a real positive note with Here Comes the Sun, just showing that, um, yeah, it's challenging. It's tough. Um, you know, it's, we, parenting is hard and it's obviously much harder if you're still a mom. But there's also great rewards and um, great pride. Yeah, I can't imagine anyone, even any parent, not finding something they can relate to because we touch on so many different topics, you know, addiction, adoption, children that are born, you know, at 25 weeks, uh, kids with special needs. I mean, we really tried to bridge a lot of different experiences and, and also in terms of identity, solo moms by choice, solo moms from different backgrounds. So it's just feels like a really lovely testament to all the moms that are doing this really hard job every day. And there's a lot of them. And there are 23 million kids being raised by single parents in America. So it's a group that I don't think they've gotten what they deserve. And, you know, going back to the issue of like these advice books, when I went through my divorce, I really wanted to find a book that was more about the heart and the soul. And it was really hard to find. And so it was really a pleasure to work on some that I knew was going to resonate with not just like, oh, you should be careful in mediation or you should, this is really about seeing the struggle that other moms have and, and, and them persevering and being resilient. Situations and experiences instead of, oh, here's yet another how to, uh, to do, which is important too, but you know, sometimes you just don't want yet another advice piece you want. Yeah, and of course, I read all those. I'm an academic. Of course, I devoured all those other books, which mm -hmm. were important. But I also felt, you know, there are times where it would have been nice to hear someone else have that heartache or someone else feel the guilt or someone else, you know, just know that that's sort of part of the process. And, you know, sometimes you are overwhelmed and sometimes, you know, are, you have to laugh at some really dark situations or, you know, just it was just understanding. And I know, I mean, this is a community that I've been, Today is actually Esme's fourth um, and fourth year anniversary, so I've been embedded in this solo mom community for a while, and so I felt like I really knew uh, what what resonates with them. So um, it it's just uh, it's an expression of kind of everything I've learned over all these years. Today is your website Esme.com's fourth year anniversary. It is yes, we we're uh, enjoying that and feeling uh, that we've. You know, we've helped over a million moms, and 
they are incredible, our community. They help each other. Um, you can see, you know, if you go in our chat rooms, they're, they're struggling, and yet they always extend a hand to someone else. They're encouraging each other. I just have found that um, so many of the stereotypes about solo moms and single moms are just not true. And um, I'm just really proud to kind of showcase the, that we that solo moms defy what we, what we expect of them. And uh, they're much stronger, they're more resilient, and they're definitely there for their kids. And they definitely got this. <laughs> yeah. First off, happy anniversary on the website. And it kind of leads into my next question. Solo dads, and this is not to minimize anything that solo dads are doing, when solo dads are seen as brave or they get a lot of forgiveness, especially if they're a widower, solo moms are seen quite differently. And there's a lot of stigma around that. And you have said that they are portrayed as a problem to be solved. What are some of the stigmas and how can they be broken? So I self-consciously use the term solo mom because single moms have historically been a problem in American society. We've seen politicians blame single moms for all kinds of things like crime and um, deviance. And so um, I use the term solo mom because I'm fi- I found that as a sociologist, many of these things are just not true. Uh, the stereotypes are solo moms have lots and lots of children. That's not true. On average, they have one child. Uh, they also say that they're all you know, sucking off the public assistance. Well, that's not the majority. They say they're not necessarily working. They're actually working two and three jobs. So, I mean, I just felt, um, you know, from my background as a sociologist and then my own experience as a, as a divorced mom, I felt like the stigmas are um, really pejorative and, and defining women that raise kids by themselves completely in a wrong way. And so, yeah, I totally agree with you. Dads, um, you know, if a single dad picks up their kid early from school and takes them to the park or something, everyone's like, you know, oh, plotting them or brings cupcakes in and they get like practically a parade. And if a single mom tries to do similar things, it's just judged really differently. And so I, when I started to work on the site, I didn't, I purposely didn't do single parenting because single moms make less on the dollar. Single moms, you know, um, are seen, you know, as, you know, with these stigmas. And so I just really felt like women have specific issues. They're obviously subject to discrimination, et cetera. So I really wanted to hone in on, on the majority of parents that are single parenting are moms and they have specific issues. Yeah, I really want to honor them and just say that they're doing a great job and they should not feel guilty. And some of the ways we can break this down is, in fact, have a book like that we, you know, my, the editors and I are doing here is showing how strong they are and how amazing they are. And I'm really happy to add that to the ammunition against all the, all the stigmas. So in the stories in the anthology, two questions. One, is your story in there? And two, what is the story that resonated with you the most that wasn't yours, if yours is in there? Yeah, my story is in here. Um, I wrote an essay about when I just got newly divorced and my kids were three and five and how guilty and hard, you know, just sort of just getting through it and how difficult it was. But so the story, there's so many that are really powerful, but one is, um, and it's ironic I'm going to bring her up because today is her birthday. Angela Ricketts wrote a piece about um, having a heart attack when her spouse was in Afghanistan. He had, he was deployed for like, I don't know, three tours and she had a heart attack and didn't thought it was stress at first and it's just a really powerful story um there's another really great story by robin rogers who loses her partner to mental illness and it's sort of 
trying to help her son through that, like just the, the pain of that. And that she says that nobody, they don't treat her. She feels like a widow, but no one treats her as such. You know, it's sort of this shameful thing. And I don't know, those, those resonate with me. And I'll mention one more because it's really funny. And I don't want you to think that the whole book is this kind of hard stuff. There's a really funny essay about it by an actress in LA and where she's sexting and um, swiping and talk like doing this while she's watching her son's soccer game. And it's just brilliant. Cause she's like, you know, sexting and she's like, Oh honey, good. You know, here's a water bottle. And, you know, it's just, just really, <laughs> it's just, she just does a really good job of like showing and, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's funny. Isn't so that we, the, we also, isn't that the epitome of multitasking though? <laughs> yeah, exactly, and that's what solo moms have to do all the time. But it's just it's it's very funny. It's called Size Queen, and it's pretty hilarious. So we have a little. So it's not all um, you know sad stuff. It's, there's some pretty good humor in there as well. You mentioned that there's many millions. And I can't remember the exact number, but you mentioned that there was a growing number of of solo moms who are doing this by choice. How do you think that's impacting parenting now and in the future? I understand why we're at a point in society where women just decide to be solo by choice. You know, there, we see a lot of older men able to be parents. You know, a lot of guys are 60, 70 parenting. So I understand when the biological reality hits, a lot of men, women are um, becoming solo by choice. I think in terms of the larger social impact, I think that it's not that there's so many women who are parenting alone for so many different reasons. And so I think it's more of how they perceive themselves because, or how people perceive, um, you know, their role. So let me give you an example because I'm being vague, but um, a lot of solo moms by choice feel guilty asking for help and they feel guilty saying that it's hard. And so I think if you're a solo mom by divorce or solo mom, you know, when your partner's incarcerated or deployed, you're more likely to, go out in your community and ask for help and get help. But if you're solo by choice, you feel really um, kind of like, oh, I asked for this. And so I should be able to step up and do everything. And it's just not, it's just so hard. And it's, so we try to encourage it as may, you know, to say, yeah, I'm, I did this by choice, but there's, you know, I need support. I need family support. I need my friends to understand. And so um, we try to create an environment where, you know, yeah, you made that choice, but it doesn't mean that you have to be isolated in this role. And it's so still okay to I, ask for help. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I'm seeing more and more, we have 75 face groups that are different locations, and I'm seeing more and more women sharing houses, more and more women trying to figure out how they can juggle daycare together. I'm just seeing so much more in this esprit de corps around solo parenting, you know, and, and I, in fact, one woman just put uh, a post where she's going to buy a very large house with eight bedrooms and she wants to get all solo moms to all live together and have a more communal way of parenting. So I think there are those changes and I, I, I'm pretty excited about them actually. I think that um, I don't want solo moms to be in isolation. I want them to reach out to each other and help each other and, um, if we're going to have policies that aren't really helping them yet, and we're going to have economic situation where they're, you know, always challenged, and especially in terms of housing, I think it's really exciting that they're, you know, extending a hand to each other. You've already mentioned some of the creative ways that, that solo moms are working together, and they're driven by children come first. 
what are some of the other ways that that women are coming up with these creative solutions? Yeah, I mean, that's I have to really assert that these uh, moms, the small moms, their kids are always, always at the forefront. And so they're compromising sometimes self-care, they're compromising sleep, you know, that that's why I tried to create a community where they could try to help each other out, you know, where they can get on. And there's so many online communities, not just Esme, but, you know, um, Facebook groups where they can get, you know, I hear them say, oh, let's go to the park, let's get a group together and, and, you know, sometimes they'll have one of them do the do the babysitting. You know, it's just um, very different than what some people think women are like. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, it's just um, one of the things I really had to acknowledge is that you just see so much more help. You know, in tra- housing, and then I mean, it, unfortunately, there's still you know a lot of moms there that feel really alone, and we get them they'll be on often at, at midnight or two in the morning on our website saying like I've, I'm so, I feel so alone. I feel like there's no one else in the world doing this. Uh, so I do think that the internet has created uh, a space for that. I think that there's more. I mean, I would just love to have, for example, where they could solo moms could take vacations together. Like if I oh, that's you know, a I great would, idea. Yeah, where you know, like say you took a, a club med resort and you're like okay this this week is only for solo moms and they reduced the price and then all these moms could meet each other and their kids could like hang out and because traveling with your kid alone is just kind of boring I mean honestly like kids are great but you just want to talk to a kid all day long <laughs> I have five children I got five kids I can say this but, but um you know I just feel like um it wouldn't be nice to have an, another adult travel with you and I just think that there there are ways to create even physical environments, you know, like, you know, home, homes that you share or vacation place, places or resorts that open themselves up. Or, you know, I just think there's ways to support solo moms. I'm always trying to get people to be solo mom allies, you know, whether it's like a yoga studio saying, hey, you know, we're going to have a special for solo moms or, you know, whatever it is. It's not going away. Let's put it that way. And so I do think there will be structural ways that women come together and help each other out. Do you have any final thoughts or comments that you'd like to share? Well, if anyone is raising a child on their own, I just want to give you huge props and say um, don't forget to care for yourself because when you allow your passions to be fulfilled and you allow your health to flourish, that you are going to be a better mom. And so self-care is very, very important to solo moms. Although I know you all got this, I just want everyone to remember that and that we know how amazing you are. You're superheroes. I just feel that very strongly and that's what keeps me going it's the passion for um you know this this demographic that's just you know has one of the greatest challenges but also lots of joy and pride in what they do every day that's what i got to say and finally where can people get the book oh so the book you can get it amazon barnes and noble um, most independent bookstores we got this solo mom stories of grit heart and humor and then the website is esme.com we're all over social media as well we have a website called wegotthisbook.com so if you wanted to see what events we're going to be having or the different reviews we got we're going to keep that that page updated for all kinds of fun stuff yeah i'm really excited thank you marika lindholm for speaking with me today on the politics of living thank you The name of the book is We Got This, Solo Mom Stories of Grit, Heart, and Humor. It's available through She Writes Press. The link is on our webpage at kboo.fm 
Search for the Politics of Living, Episode 31. Senior contributor Tavi Fashi Drake is back with a segment from her podcast, Peace, Love, and Soup. Tavi and her co-host Brian Delaney interviewed Dana Snyder, the social justice program manager of YWCA PDX. They discussed Dana's work in the Portland area. Here's that interview. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Peace, Love, and Soup Live. And a very happy Peace Month to you all. Sadly, racism and gun violence are still leading the news cycle. We can't let this get us down. We need to actively participate and foster peace and justice for all. Well, and in our small way, that's why you and I created this podcast in the first place, to celebrate all and encourage a community of kindness and creativity around our shared interests and also our differences. Tave, each summer you volunteer in the Peace and Justice booth at Oregon Country Fair. You represent Siren Nation and YWCA of PDX. That's right. How was your experience this past July? Well, it was fantastic. It's always a nice time. I look forward to it every year. But this year was the 50th anniversary at fair, and so, so many more people were there, more than ever attended. It was just a delight to see the expression on so many different people's faces when they came up to the Peace and Justice booth and asked about the different organizations represented there. So we have everything from Siren Nation, which promotes women in the arts, and YWCF PDX, and Peace Village Global, but then we have Cop Watch and Peace Corps and many other wonderful organizations, nonprofits. What's a huge passion of mine is being able to showcase and talk about the great work that the organization YWCA of PDX does. And it's why I'm so excited that we are able today to have Dara Snyder, the Social Justice Program Manager of YWCA of Portland, with us here. Welcome to Peace, Love, and Soup Live, Dara. Hi, Dara. Hi, Brian. Thank you for joining us today to speak about social justice during this month of peace. Um, What does a regular day of being the social justice manager at YWCA look like? Sure. There's, you know, not really a typical day. My appointments tend to be all over the place. Um, For example, this week I've had the meetings to plan an event around domestic violence and communities of color, which we'll be hosting for the fourth time uh, in partnership with culturally specific DV service providing organizations. I'm also meeting with a number of uh, private groups and organizations for facilitated dialogues or workshops around different social justice issues, such as uh, addressing racism, understanding oppression theory, um, diversity and inclusion, I'm also, uh, today I met with someone from Gabriela Portland, which does solidarity work for people in the Philippines and our local Filipino community. So it it really varies Mm -hmm. from different ways of engaging with the community members around understanding and then mobilizing around social justice issues. And what I love is that this is stuff for Portland, but it's also stuff for outside of Portland, for people in the greater state of Oregon, as well as the United States and abroad. So thank you for that work you do. Oh, yeah. I think we all really need to be doing as much as we can right now. It's kind of clear, I think, to everyone that it's time for all hands on deck. For sure. Dara, what do you find is the most rewarding part of the work that you do? Oh, my. Um <laughs> You know, the WISE mission is eliminating racism and empowering women, and these are both um, very dear to my heart. It's a very fuzzy line between personal and professional for me in this role. I'm very humbled to have a vocation that 
um, resonates with me so deeply. And I think working with a diversity of communities and particularly centering and uplifting folks who are most directly impacted by an issue or who have historically been marginalized or excluded from certain conversations is uh, so critical and always a, a lens and a framework that I use in the work that I do and how it's done. Well, it's just so very valuable in so many different ways. And um, will you please share with us how this important program got started in the first place? Yeah, um, that predated me by a year or two. I've been in the role for four years, um, but there was a need for training to DV advocate or aspiring DV advocates who need to complete 40 hours of um, training to understand systems of oppression and particularly gender-based violence and how to dismantle those systems and support survivors and victims. Just to make sure that everybody knows, so DV is standing for domestic violence. Yes, thank you. So that's the bread and butter of the social justice program is a weekly uh, workshop, which is open to everyone um, on a different issue. We've had a great run lately. Um, this week, we've talked about impacts of trauma. Next week, we're going to have a workshop on intersectional advocacy. Later in the month, we'll have a session on working with immigrant and refugees. And uh, that's uh, how our program got started. Years back, I attended a workshop led by your predecessor, Choya, who started the social justice program initially. And so she delivered this workshop. The focus was on white privilege and it was delivered to a multi-ethnic audience. Those of us scheduled to work the featured exhibit entitled Race at the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry or OMSI. And it was really eye-opening for many, particularly for me and for those of us who appear white regardless of our backgrounds. And the fact that a privilege is given to us whether we realize it or not, whether we asked for it or not, and this is regardless of our own identity. And it was just super moving and very leveling in so many ways. And um, I specifically learned that. But can you share with us some other reactions people walk away with from these valuable workshops? I think folks are really appreciative for the opportunity to talk in a safer and supportive structured space where we're, you know, concertedly gathered to have a difficult conversation, engaging multiple perspectives and uh, people coming from different walks of life and roles in the community. And folks report to me that they feel engaged and uplifted and uh, in a way that they often don't in a more traditional Western classroom setting where the dynamic tends to be one of imparting knowledge as opposed to really recognizing that the solution and the truth lies with all of us and our ability to work together to uh, create a more just community. Mm -hmm. yeah. These organizations and individuals that attend the workshops, um, how can other interested parties find out more about these weekly and or monthly workshops? Well, thank you so much for asking. <laughs> number of ways to get connected. Uh, I think the easiest might, way might be following us on social media. That's YWCA of Greater Portland. Um, our Facebook cross-posts all of our weekly public trainings, but we also have a website, ywcapdx.org, where you can learn about um, our public trainings, the private workshops that I facilitate, as well as our other programs. And you are leading every workshop and private workshop, or do you have people that work with you and teach with you? 
Yeah, um, it's a great question. I am the facilitator for the private workshop. Mm -hmm. You know, any group or community might ask for an external consultant to come in and and facilitate a, a dialogue or workshop. But our weekly series, we collaborate with community service organizations and uh, experts who might be doing independent consulting to have a really robust series on a range of topics. I see. I know the why, this is like sort of my pet piece of it, but the YDBCA of PDX has so many wonderful programs. I know that there are five different areas, but would you kindly share a brief bit about them? Sure. Um, Well, Broadly speaking, the social justice program does systemic change to kind of change hearts and minds and uh, do some legislative advocacy while we're at it. We also have direct service programs, including our domestic violence services, which um, we have Navigators at the Gateway Center, which is a resource hub for folks experiencing domestic violence. Um, We also have a couple different um, housing units for folks in need of affordable housing. We have senior services, which are based in Gresham, and that's a range of different kinds of services from clothing to um, sort of referrals for legal support. And we also have our newest program, which is the Family Preservation Program, which is located at Coffee Creek Correctional Facility, and it supports mothers while they're incarcerated in Um, maintaining and nurturing the bond with their children while the mothers are incarcerated. And as you said earlier, anybody wants more information, they can go to ywcapdx.org and see all the programs that they offer. Yes. Yes. Okay. And then here's a, this might be a tricky question, but what one thing comes to mind that one could do to actively encourage peace or social justice in their community and frankly, the world today? Uh, Well, I think I've have a quote that sums it up. It's by Adrienne Marie Brown, and she says, where we are born into privilege, we are charged with dismantling any myth of supremacy. Where we are born into struggle, we are charged with reclaiming our dignity, joy, and liberation. And so I think this gets at the nuance of the fact that, you know, at least at some point in our lives, we will all have uh, some non-dominant cultural identity. And to the extent that we do have access to power and privilege or dominant culture identities, um, that's the extent to which we can be centering, uplifting, and listening to people who are being oppressed based on not having a privileged identity in that way that you do. And then, you know, certainly there's liberation work organizing within our communities and communities of color or um, LGBTQ plus communities where um, we are born into that struggle and our work needs to be in self-love and community building and ultimately more broad collective liberation work. And I just heard this quote today. Supposedly it's a well-known one. I hadn't heard it, but it was any anything that deserves to be done deserves to be done imperfectly. And what that meant was don't be afraid to act for fear of doing it incorrectly because we need to step out. We need to step outside of our comfort zones and we need to start doing this with an, an open heart, but putting ourselves out there and daring to even do it incorrectly, because if we don't have these conversations and if we don't actively start trying to make these changes and even stumbling up along the way, we're never going to get there. And I just thought it was so beautiful and just sort of gives us all um, a, a little bit of a pass and also a little bit of encouragement. 
thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And okay, finally, the last and toughest question. Oh um, boy. What's your favorite soup? <laughs> so peace, love, and soup, obviously, it's about soup. We say it's significant soups with culture cooking conversation and audio nourishment for the heart and mind. And we use soup figuratively, but we also use it literally, too. And so it's also fun to get an idea of the different people we talk to. Is there a specific soup that they like? And if so, why? And so that's our question for you today, Dara. You said you're not looking for a literally a soup. It can be. <laughs> we are. We it are. can be. Yeah, it can be literally a soup. We will sometimes say, well, it's like this whole event today, like all of us getting able, being able to talk, the three of us together. In a sense, that's all of us in the soup together. You know, we're bringing our own little bit of spice, our own perspective. We're sitting around the table, to so to speak, together. And while we're not eating soup right now, now we're going to talk about it. <laughs> So, oh, yeah. Well, my favorite soup is a gazpacho from Zabar's, which is a staple in uh, in Manhattan. But um, I love the analogy, and I think it speaks not to assimilation, but really appreciating different cultures, which is what we have the opportunity to do in this country. Um, you know, you talk about needing permission to make mistakes, and that's certainly true. I think folks are really afraid. Research even says that, you know, say white folks are nervous, uncomfortable talking about racism, and I clearly find that in in the work that I do. Hmm. Fear of saying the wrong thing or not uh, having the right answer or knowing enough, but um, not having the conversation creates more fear and division, and we know how that's impacting our community. So um, as uncomfortable as it may be, we clearly need to be in the soup together, and I appreciate you inviting me into this. Thank you so much for being with us here today, especially on such short notice. Dear listeners, we called Dara just earlier today. Um, So we appreciate you fitting it in in between your important meetings and your very busy schedule. Is there anything else that you wanted to add that we didn't ask you about? Um, You know, I think I just want to emphasize it can get uncomfortable um, pretty constantly doing social justice work. But if you're comfortable... uh, I I don't think you're really doing it. Um, Mm. You have a lot of dominant culture identities. So also it's not about sort of just going to a rally once a year. Um, Things are extremely inflamed right now. And uh, I think allyship or accomplice work is work that needs to happen um, in our personal lives and professionally. And there's room to do it every day. And it can look very in any number of ways from talking to our friends, uh, educating our children around our, our history of, of genocide and enslavement in this country to, um, you know, changing policy or practice at an organization and how it ha- leads to uh, disparate outcomes for different marginalized groups. I just am speechless. You're just the poster child for Peace, Love, and Soup here. Yes. And I thank you again for the work you're doing in the world and the work for everybody else um, from YWCA and PDX. So thank you from Brian and I here at Peace, Love, and Soup. Thanks to you, Dara, for being with us today and to all of you out there in Portland listening. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. Bye. If you'd like to donate, get workshop information, and or get involved, please go to ywcapdx.org. Please go forth this month, and every month for that matter, and spread the peace, love, and, of course, soup. Audio nourishment for the heart and mind with Brian Delaney and Tave Fashe Drake. To find out more about us and listen to past episodes, go to kboo.fm forward slash peace, love, and soup. You can find us on Facebook and SoundCloud at peace, love, and soup. 
Peace, Love, and Soup can be found on kboo.fm. The She-Ra Solution is a monthly biography of women past and present hosted by Kristen Thiel. Its title is inspired by Maria Teresa Hart's article, She-Ra and the Fight Against the Token Girl, published June 16, 2016 in The Atlantic. This month, pour yourself a cuppa. We're learning a little about the inventor of those ubiquitous Melita brand paper coffee filters in the red and green cartons and the accompanying pour over cones. Here's Kristen Thiel. The week I recorded this month's She Resolution, I was feeling rather sluggish. Nothing seemed to be helping, so my grogginess stayed front of mind. When selecting who to feature, I thought it seemed only fitting that I looked to coffee, even though it wasn't doing me a lick of good right now. Coffee is the stuff of sunny mornings and rainy afternoons, long talks and short deadlines. And until the early 1900s, it was a bit of a mess to make, honestly. At least, that's what Melita Bentz thought. She loved a cup of coffee in the morning, but she hated the grounds that inevitably escaped the pot into her cup. And she really hated having to thoroughly clean the whole pot each time because it was full of a heavy, wet clump of grounds. She came from a family of entrepreneurs. Her father was a bookseller, and her grandparents ran a brewery. And she was a mother of three, so she figured she could do something about this problem. The 30-something-year-old had lived in Dresden, Germany her whole life, and that is where, in June 1908, she ended up patenting her brilliant invention. A paper coffee filter inserted into a tin pot, punched through, I picture rather forcefully, with holes. The prototype filter had been a piece of paper torn from one of her kids' school notebooks. When the invention worked, I picture Melita's shoulders lowering and her jaw unclenching. After all, she did come to call this, quote, perfect coffee enjoyment. Once they had the patent, Melita and her husband, Hugo, started manufacturing the filters and more refined versions of the pour-over coffee cones in their city apartment. They showed passers-by how to use the technique in displays Hugo set up in stores, and sons Willie and Horst delivered the orders by handcart. Their big break came when they showed at the Leipzig trade fair in 1909. Suddenly, all of Germany wanted one of these coffee makers. In 1912, three years later, the family company grew to eight employees. Here's where I really appreciate this story. Melita didn't step aside when it came to naming her brilliant invention. She put her name, and not even her maiden or married last name, but one of her own middle names, the name she went by on the product. And she didn't just stop with getting a good invention out into the world. When Hugo and Willie went to World War I, Melita believed in her product to be the family's sole income source. Horribly, the company cooperated with the Nazis in World War II to produce military supplies in their factory. Melita and her husband had retired by then, but still, that's not an awesome connection. For what it's worth, after the war, the company contributed to a victim compensation program. A little more in line with Melita's style. When she'd been running things, she instituted a uniquely generous five-day work week, up to three weeks of vacation, and Christmas bonuses. She also founded Melita Aid, a social fund for company employees. Nearly 70 years after Melita's death, that support foundation, along with her company, now employing more than 4,000 and earning $1.8 billion per year, 
is still around. I'm your host, Kristen Thiel, and I'll be back next month. That was Kristen Thiel with the She-Raw Solution. In this month's edition of Let's Stop for a Minute, Emma Laurie explores the masks that we all use and how that can be a good thing. Here's Let's Stop for a Minute with ML Laurie. So let's stop for a minute. Let's think about this. In my last segment, we talked about how everyone feels insecure and how this is related to the two faulty software programs we have, that we are what other people think we are, and that happiness can be found from things outside of ourselves. So this all comes back to looking outside of ourselves to find the happiness that we all desire. We also talked about the whole idea of how we can't see people's insecurities because people wear masks. I left you with three questions. Do you think that everyone wears a mask? Do you think that people are aware that they are wearing a mask? And do you think that our happiness is related to the mask that we wear? So I say that everyone wears a mask because there are different kinds of masks. We all, at times, wear the superficial mask. That's the mask that we wear when we've had a bad day or we're unhappy about something and we go into the grocery store and we aren't hateful to the cashier. We are actually at least pleasant. That's wearing a mask. That's hiding how we truly feel. So the whole idea of wearing a mask is not a bad thing. Nothing is bad or right or wrong. When I come into my segments, I'm just talking about our human condition, the things that we have learned to do in our life to function in the world, to feel secure, and to try to be happy. And the whole idea is to become aware of the things that we have going on in our lives and that we have learned, especially the faulty software programs, that interfere with this happiness that we all seek and with our functioning in the world on different levels. So the superficial mask sometimes is the courteous mask or the kind mask or the polite mask, and there's nothing wrong with this. I think it's much better, even if you're feeling horrible, to be polite and kind or at least quiet than to be hateful or unkind to someone and then actually have this side effect of them having their day be disturbed in some way, and then it all kind of snowballs into them being unkind to someone else or however that might be. But the superficial, courteous, kind mask can be a good thing to have. The mask that I was really talking about last time was really the mask that we wear when we're out functioning in the world and trying to interact with people. The mask that we wear where we're trying to present ourselves in a particular way so that people think particular things about us. Because, after all, we believe the faulty cultural messages or software programs that we get that what people think about us is true. I've given you many examples in my segments of how this is definitely not true. Just a blatant example is how some people really love Donald Trump and other people think he's the worst thing that ever happened to America. Obviously, we don't see the same things. So what somebody sees when they look at you as a product of the software programs on their mind. 
This insecurity that comes about, that brings about this mask, is based on the faulty software programs, again, about trying to project ourselves in a certain way so that people think certain things about us, because after all, what they think about us is important and valid. And the other faulty software program that is a major thing that influences everything in our life, that happiness can be found from things outside of ourselves, and that if we don't have people, particular people that we think are important to have in our lives, then we can't be happy, which is definitely not true. There are many people who live very quiet, isolated lives who are very happy. A lot of them are actually monks or nuns or or holy lamas. Happiness is an internal process. This is the whole gist of what I'm trying to convey in my segments. A stable happiness comes from doing the inner work. There are people that have shared with me that they never share anything with anyone before they stop and think. So they always stop and think before they say anything. Now, it's not the healthy stopping and thinking so that you aren't unkind. There are health reasons to stop and think about what you say before you say it, not just reacting negatively, say. But we're talking about people who feel so insecure about who they are and what they are that they don't say anything unless they think about it for some period of time in order to convey themselves in a certain way. This is the kind of mask that I'm talking about. This mask, most people are usually aware of on some level. There are varying degrees of mask. Of course, we don't all feel insecure in everything. There are areas that we feel more stable in, and so we don't wear a mask because we don't feel insecure in that area. Sort of. Some people might feel secure in what they're able to do at their job, but they still wear a particular kind of mask in order to protect themselves. So it's variable how this mask can be. But again, most people are aware of this. I have a friend, a shaman, a woman who has studied in Peru, who I was having this conversation with once, and she said, I never show people how I really am. I was quite shocked because this is someone who presents herself as a holy being. So why is she wearing this mask? Why does she not show people who she really is or how she really is? What is this fear? What is this about? So this all also comes into relate to another type of mask that we will talk more about at another point in time, which is the mask that we wear to ourselves. This mask that we wear to ourselves is a really big one because this is the mask that is totally made up of all the faulty software programs that we have. Well, not all faulty, but of the software programs that we have been given over the years. And these have formed who we think we are and what we are. And a lot of it's based upon patterns that we have developed in order to get our needs met. This is a different level of mask. The mask I was referring to last week and what I am referring to in more detail this week is the mask that we are mainly aware of. There might be some little times when it comes from the mask we wear to ourself and the mask we wear to ourself is so hidden that we're not really aware of how we are masking ourselves to others on a more superficial basis. But there is some awareness of this mask. I know somebody who has a really powerful mask, and a friend of mine shared with me once that this woman said that she's always afraid that her husband will leave her, but there's none of that conveyed to anyone that she is around, and so she acts like she's superior.
It's an interesting idea, this mask that we wear to others when we're out and about. Again, this is very different than the mask of courtesy or a politeness, kindness. Somebody does something you don't like and you're not calling them a hateful name. You just keep quiet. On some level, that's a mask because you're not sharing what you're really thinking and feeling, which is not a bad thing. Again, masks are not bad. It's just something that we do. When you work with adolescents, they have this thing they call, well, and maybe other people use it too, but I'm, I'm used to adolescents using the term poser. And this being someone who is presenting themselves a certain way, and they don't really believe themselves to be this way. They are posing or pretending, and the pretender is another word that can be used. Again, this is not a bad thing, but when you become more secure, there's not a need for this. This is the whole crux of it. If you feel more secure, you can just be who or what you are because it doesn't matter what somebody else thinks about you. You are who you are, and that's not right or wrong or good or bad, and that different people see you differently, so it doesn't matter because they're going to see you whatever way they choose to see you out of their own software programs, no matter what you do. And there are times when, in situations and in personal growth, where you are actually pretending intentionally to be a certain way, now, this is not what we're talking about because sometimes it's important to act as you want to be. And so it can feel like pretending, but it's not really. It's like practicing. Someone like me who talks a lot, I can practice keeping quiet to be a more peaceful person. And that is very effective for me. But when I was doing this, trying to be a more quiet person, I could feel that desire to talk, to speak up, and it would come up. And I would stop that. And I just wouldn't talk. So it felt like pretending at one point in time, but then it just became part of my nature. So that's about changing. This is about wanting to make a change and pretending to be a certain way or practicing to be a certain way in order to do that. But this is not the mask. This is not the mask that we're talking about. We're talking about a mask that we all wear in order to feel safe and secure so that we don't get harmed in some way, either by somebody's words or the person who stands out to be strong if they think that somebody around them might harm them in some way and so they don't want to present themselves as weak, things like that. So let's stop for a minute and think about all this. Are you aware when you wear a mask? Are you aware of the deeper mask that you wear to yourself, the mask that portrays yourself in a certain way so that you can feel good about yourself or get your needs met or feel safe? So let's stop for a minute and let's think about all of this. Let's think about it. I'm M.L. Laurie. Well, that concludes this episode of The Politics of Living. Thanks to our guests and our contributors. Marika Lindholm, Dana Snyder, Tavi Fashi Drake, Brian Delaney, M.L. Laurie, and Kristen Thiel. Visit kboo.fm and search for The Politics of Living, Episode 31, to find links about today's topics and guests. If you'd like to be a guest or a contributor on The Politics of Living, or if you have feedback, comments, or suggestions, please email us at tpol at kboo.org. To hear previous episodes of this show or any of our KBOO Public Affairs programming, just go to kboo.fm or listen on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're going to end this episode with a song performed by Roque Royale entitled Cover Each Other. 
Thanks for listening to The Politics of Living. I'm Vicki Mazzone. Short day. I know it's been insane.